Mamma Mia subscribers, you've been asking and we've been listening. Now you can get all of your exclusive subscriber audio on Apple Podcasts. That includes everything from bonus episodes of your favourite pods to exclusive segments to all of our audio series. To link your Mamma Mia subscription to Apple Podcasts, open the Mamma Mia Out Loud page in your Apple Podcasts app and follow the prompts or head to help.mamamia.com.au. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. Welcome to Mamma Mia Out Loud. It's what women are talking about three times a week. I'm Holly Wainwright. I'm Mia Friedman. And I'm Jessie Stevens. And we know that one of the things that women are talking about this week and last week, and in fact for years pretty much, is Israel and Palestine. But we're not going to address it on the show today because we did an incredible episode of The Quickie this week. It is one of the best sort of overviews of what's going on that I've listened to. And I know for a lot of listeners, it's been a real attempt to get our head around it because there is so much context, sort of hundreds of years of of context that can feel very, very far away. But obviously, it's horrible what's happening. And we're just going to play a little snippet of Claire Murphy, the host Claire Murphy, speaking to Dr. A.L. Maroz on why this issue is so divisive, even amongst people who don't live in these affected regions. So you might have seen in Australia, there is an ongoing debate. And here is what he said. Dr. A.L. Mayroz is a senior lecturer in the Department of Peace and Conflict Studies at the University of Sydney. Here in Australia, you have people who will accuse others of being anti-Semitic if they don't support Israel, others who say that they support terrorism if they support the Palestinians. Why is this dispute so divisive? I think that's an excellent question. There's various reasons. First of all, Israel has a, a number of very holy religious sites for uh, you know most of the people of the world, uh, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Another reason is that there's a large diasporas, large populations of both Palestinians and Jews all over the world, as well as, uh, you know, as I already said, Christians who by and large support the Jewish people. Third reason is that it's a very protracted conflict that has been going on for 100 years now, and and the objective, I would say, challenges of of resolving the conflict have led to so many rounds of both violence and attempts to resolve the conflict that it keeps coming back to, uh, you know, international uh, uh, media, international public opinion, and so on. There's also, as you say, there's a strong polarization often between supporters of either side that the leads to tensions and, you know, as far as wide as Australia and and other countries, instead of trying to find a, you know, a common ground, a virtual spot, if you like, where pro-Israeli becomes also pro-Palestinian, the division is very powerful. I would also add that the daily human rights violations and oppression of the Palestinians is something that many, many advocates of human rights uh, find it really difficult to keep quiet about. And so that also leads to the tensions that we see now around the world. On the show today, the birth Olympics. Why is having a baby still viewed as a competitive sport? And there's a group of people who've been deemed the most valuable to have at work. Are you one of them? But first, Jessie, 
I want to talk about Bill Gates, the big old dirty dog. I actually foreshadowed this the other week. You did? I did, and I would like that on the record, Mm -hmm. that we were talking about their divorce. Mia, you suggested that I may have gone too far. I did. In that I don't know Bill Gates personally, but I suggested. I defended his honour. Exactly. And hers. I suggested that potentially... Bill Gates was being naughty with the ex that he holidayed with every year. There was an ex-girlfriend and he had it written into his marriage contract, maybe, that he went once a year and just, I don't know, played golf with this woman. Anyway, that was the least of Bill's issues (laughs) because sources have come forward this week and not all of them are me about Bill's history. So just for context, Bill and Melinda Gates ended their 27-year marriage a few weeks ago And this week, the reports are all about why. Sources have revealed that Bill pursued women who worked for him at both Microsoft and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. He had an affair with a Microsoft employee that he himself has now confirmed, uh, which led the company to investigate what had happened. And then shortly after that, he resigned from the board. A lot of people are saying the two things aren't related. They're probably related. The New York Times has also reported that there were other women Gates pursued in the workplace. Six former and current employees have come forward and said that he created an uncomfortable workplace. There was a specific example which I think speaks to the sorts of things he might have been doing and that was in 2006. Gates attended a presentation by a female employee of Microsoft and he emailed her afterwards and asked her to dinner. In the email he said, If it makes you uncomfortable, pretend it never happened. Allegedly, that was in the email. Additional reports say that he would put Melinda down in meetings and was dismissive of her in front of other employees. And according to numerous other sources, Bill Gates' friendship with Jeffrey Epstein, who was charged with child sex trafficking, played a part in the demise of their marriage. Those rumours have been circulating for a few years. That's not to say that Bill was involved in any way, but just that the friendship with this, you know, figure might have been... Uh, and it was a friendship that I read came about after he'd been convicted and gone to jail for sex trafficking. Right. Whereas many of Epstein's other friendships, like with... Andrew, etc., predated that conviction. Interesting. So, and the other thing that I read, which I thought was interesting, is that there was a sexual harassment allegation around Bill's money manager, who I imagine would be quite busy because he is Has a lot one of, of the richest men mm. in the world. And Melinda wasn't happy with the way it was conducted and wanted an independent investigation because the money manager had allegedly sexually harassed a female employee at a local bike shop or something. I have a quick question. Um, Melinda, do you reckon she's got the best PR person in the world doing all of this? These leaks are coming from her, right? Yeah, well, I wanted to ask Holly because she is our media spin gossip correspondent. (laughs) Holly, I saw a tweet that said, Melinda Gates has planned this divorce as meticulously as Katie Holmes planned her escape from Tom Cruise. All of the things that have come out in the last week or so in very reputable publications, so not gossip publications, we're talking the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, have been very unfavourable to Bill Gates. What's going on behind the scenes? A hundred percent, Melinda is leaking, a hundred percent. And because as you pointed out, she's leaking to the right people. Because if this is just tittle-tattle in the Daily Mail and, you know, on TMZ and stuff, then obviously that just looks tawdry. 
but they're not outrageous claims. They're very damaging to his reputation, but they're not like illegal or anything. Mm-hmm. It's not um, Harvey Weinstein. No, it's not it's Harvey not. Weinstein level, but mm-hmm. it just all sows these seeds that he was a bad husband and that their marriage and their supposedly rock solid partnership that was changing the world for the better. And let's remember, it still was. Like if he asked some is. people out for dinner, that doesn't mean that they haven't made an enormous difference to mm. malaria in Africa or whatever. But it all sows the seeds for what's to come, which is the settlement, right? Because the question that I have two things here, it's not surprising really that Bill Gates is an alpha male who asks out pretty women and, you know, is not entirely faithful. That's not really surprising. But this is a very good example of why very powerful and wealthy people, why they stay married for a long time if they can. Because if you can keep things amicable enough, you keep all this dirt and gossip inside the house, you probably have tacit agreements about what is okay and what isn't okay. As we discussed the other day, that level of wealth, that level of travel, that level of responsibility, it's not like Bill and Melinda were having dinner together every night and probably sleeping in the same bed every night and things anyway. So if you could maintain that as a kind of platonic, advantageous for both parties situation, much preferable to not have this being dragged through a divorce court. So obviously something has happened or time has just come to a point where Melinda is like, no, divorce. And this is why you don't want that to happen because this is all coming out now. Melinda is laying this groundwork. What will happen now, though, of course, is that Bill's people will do the same. So the next round of information we get fed will probably be Melinda isn't the saint that you think she is. She was having an affair with blah, blah. But or she was she, though? Well, I mean, I have no idea. But, you know, but why how not? How why don't do we, you know? But what I mean is I think what we can expect next is Bill's people firing back about whatever Melinda's what been up to. I want to know, though, is why Melinda cares about public opinion. So the settlement is a really interesting point. For settlement. Any other reason? Like do you think that she's about to have a second act in terms of her career and she has to make sure that her reputation is strong and her image? Well, let's give her the benefit of the doubt and say that she was jack of it. You know, the the first stories that came out were that she was uncomfortable about his friendship with Jeffrey Epstein and it said that they – clashed about that a lot. And something that was was hiding in plain sight was she wrote a book a couple of years ago and she did some interviews around that time and she said, I think in the book, one of the biggest fights they ever had was that she wanted to co-sign the annual letter that Bill Gates wrote from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that sort of talked about what they'd done through the year. and, And he said no. He dug his heels in. And she said this was one of the biggest fights they'd ever had. So obviously everything wasn't great, but I think that what else is probably in it for her, not in it for her, but I think it would be galling if you knew all of this. You know, you've got the the far-right QAnon conspiracists who think he's trying to inject people with microchips, whatever. But to, to most people, he is seen as a credible, generous there's a Jewish word called mensch, which just means like a good guy mm. who is a leading voice in COVID, doing all this great stuff with with vaccinations. I think she's just jack of it. And also she probably wants to change the narrative because when very rich and powerful people break up in midlife, I mean they're a bit older than midlife, but it's generally he's seen as like – you know, remember the memes when it first happened? Everybody wanted to, I want to meet Bill Gates. Yes. On no one's saying that about middle-aged women. That's all like, oh, it's a bit sad, isn't it, for Melinda? Like she wants to change that narrative and be like, no, I'm Jack of a 
dickhead. She doesn't I mean, want right. anyone to match with him on Tinder. And she, but no. also she wants to, whatever her second act is, because I think you're very right, Jesse. of course she'll have one and she won't have him around her neck anymore. She wants to set that scene of like, it's not, I'm not some wronged wife. You know, I, I put up with this for a long time, but there's a point at which the man I married isn't the man you think he is. Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move, and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. I have to get something off my chest and it's probably going to be a bit controversial, but let's go. We haven't had a good argument in a while. (laughs) Oh dear. I just want to yell at you sometimes. Okay, let me yell at you. Go. I know. In my WhatsApp group, one of my friends received a text from another friend of hers who I don't know, but this person sent this text to announce the birth of her baby, which is obviously lovely news. It's always great news when when a baby's born into the world so long as everyone wants it to be born into the world. Disclaimer, disclaimer. (laughs) Anyway, so the baby came along and in the text it was like beautiful little whatever the baby's name was, was born and then I laboured at home. This person had wanted to have a home birth. I'd laboured at home for all these hours and then I went to the hospital because my midwife thought that I would be too tired. But then I rallied and she came into the world 10 hours later with minimal intervention and no drugs. Hmm. And I just thought it really, we had this really robust conversation in our WhatsApp group because I was like, since when is how much intervention you had and whether or not you had drugs something that you include in the announcement of a baby? Because it's very coded and what it says is, this is the optimum outcome, that I had no drugs and minimal intervention. Celebrities do that a bit. Yes, and I've noticed it's been a big thing when celebrities announce their births and Sometimes if a if a male celebrity talks about their partner giving birth, they'll say, what a hero, she had no drugs. And I just think this narrative is so messed up. And I want to say I've had three babies, I've had two epidurals and one not. The worst birth I had was the one that was not. It's not because I didn't want once because one that wasn't available to me. And there is just no other situation in the world where the person who experiences the most pain without pain relief wins. Can and I, I hate this birth Olympics and I want it to stop. So can I ask a question? I saw on Instagram the other day a friend that I have posted a big thing about her birth and it wasn't a great birth, right? It was in terms of everything sort of went wrong in terms of her plan and it ended up being a C-section when she'd been planning to deliver vaginally and... It's not that it goes wrong. It's just that babies can't read the plan because they're in the womb and they are not available to receive So she had details of pain relief that she'd had. She had the interventions that had taken place, blah, 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 blah. So are you only allowed to share what happened about your birth if you're... If it... If it wasn't perfect. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean. And I think the answer to that is no. But I just, if someone asks you, tell me about the birth, by all means. But as soon as women start detailing, because it's a form of hierarchy, that the absolute best possible birth is one with no intervention. And excuse me, but last time I checked, 
We don't call when someone goes to the dentist intervention. When you go to the children's hospital with your sick baby, you don't call it intervention. You call it medical assistance to Do provide you feel a good outcome. As a woman who has had sound like- two <laughs> epidurals, do you do you think yeah, the reason it makes you so mad is because you think this is a judgment on my decision to have drugs? Probably. But it's funny, after I had my daughter and there weren't drugs available and someone said, do you feel really quite smug, like a close friend said, do you feel a bit smug that you had no drugs? And I got really angry. I went, no, I feel betrayed. I feel let down. And I think that's a problem too because I thought that I was ready for anything but in my head the plan I had was that I'd have an epidural. And I just, I know that it's hard to have no control. I guess that's probably a separate thing but I just want this whole idea of, Whoever has the least amount of medical assistance or pain relief wins. I think that's bullshit. Holly, you didn't have drugs and you actually wear a badge to work. That I says wear a rose at all smug? times. You know, it's drug free champion. Drug free mum. <laughs> it's 11 years since I had my first <laughs> drug free natural birth yes. and I have not taken off <laughs> that medal badge around it's really my neck. Worn. Mia and I feel a bit differently about this issue because. I feel like it's a situation in which women can't win. I don't believe that birth is a medical procedure and I think that Mia does, right? I think that it's entirely justifiable and fair for women to have opinions and thoughts and aspirations about probably the most profound experience of their life. I think that's actually a justifiably feminist position to say, no, I'm not just going to do exactly what you tell me to do or what you tell me to do. I want to have a say in that. I think that's fine, right? Caveat, 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 always putting health and the well-being of the baby and the mother very high on list. But I think that if you want to have a home birth and you've done all the right things and go hard, if you want to aim for a drug-free experience, then go for your life. If you don't and you want to have a scheduled C-section or you want to Make sure you know the epidural is going to be available. Go for your life too. I think that women should have lots and lots and lots of say in how they give birth. So I think Mia and I differ a little bit on that point. But I do hate the judgment. I hate the judgment. I think it's ridiculous. I've got good friends who who kind of suffered with a level of almost depression after their birth because they felt it hadn't gone the way that they had planned, in inverted commas, and that they felt like they had failed and they felt like the me- even the medical people in the hospital were judging them, never mind other mothers. I think that's absolutely ridiculous and awful. I also think that you should be allowed to tell your positive birth stories if you had one. Because but I had a positive birth story. I'm not saying that because I had positive birth stories, much more positive birth stories with pain relief. My issue is about the way pain relief and medical intervention in quote marks is demonized and in no other way do we fetishize pain as being heroic to endure i know what you're saying um only when women are having it during birth the person who hasn't had children i'm not as close to that so i wonder if when i have children and i will absolutely be choosing to have all the pain relief if i will then feel that judgment but i just did a an eight episode series of the delivery room the first episodes out today with what lee campbell and so I, what is the delivery room first of all the delivery room is it's birth stories but it's got a different lens which is basically that i've spoken on this podcast at length about my terror my fear of having babies because I don't like pain and I don't like being out of control and birth is both of those things Mm. and this is almost an experiment 
in terms of does anyone like pain? Does anyone go, I, I love being out of control? I think there are people that are better at accepting. Like my mum is one of those people who just sort of accepts what comes to her. Stoic. She doesn't resist. Yes. Yeah. And yes. I think that that's, uh, that, you know, that's a quality some women have. But this was an exercise in leaning into a fear and thinking, will I come out the other end being more or less scared about birth? And I learned I was a little bit eye-rolly before this in terms of, no pain relief, natural, all that kind of stuff. And I'm I'm still, I think, every woman gets her own choice. But I spoke to women who explained to me that there are different types of pain, right? If you have kidney stones, your body is saying something is going really, really wrong right now and you need to sort that out. If you consider the pain of childbirth as, and there's a word for this, it's called productive pain, which oh. is that your body is doing what it is meant to. That doesn't mean you don't get all the relief. It hurts just as much, let me tell you. It hurts just as much, but pain is so much to do with how you view that pain. So there are but some why? women. You could say this about anything, Jesse. You could say, I'm getting, I don't know, I'm getting a tooth pulled out and ultimately it's going to be great because my teeth will but look better afterwards. with your body. So that is pain. But there are some women who want to feel it and I have never respected that decision more. If you want to go in and you want to feel those contractions because you know it's bringing close to your baby, then I refuse to make fun of that woman or I'm not, not that you're doing fun that. Of her. I'm just saying she's not better in no, any no, way she's equal. than the woman who wants all the drugs. Exactly. I 100% agree with that. And we internalise that hierarchy of whoever has the least drugs and experiences the most pain wins. I agree with that. But then on the other hand, like to be honest, I couldn't even tell you why I didn't want to have drugs. I couldn't even tell you why, but I didn't. I wasn't, I will never, absolutely not, and I will cry if I have to. But I went in going, if I can do it, I'm going to do it. Do you think you're better than me? And that's secretly? my point is that do no, I don't, I, do. I don't even a little bit. So you're bit. projecting and everyone else projects on you too because when I went on to, into a mother's group, and I love my mother's group, so I'm never going to criticise mother's groups, but everybody tells their birth story, right? That's one of the rites of passage when you first sit down for your first cup of coffee and your banana bread if you sit down and you say <laughs> so true. my birth my first birth this isn't the story of my second birth but my first birth was fast it was painful as I couldn't even find the words but it was actually the most incredible experience I've ever had in my life and if I could live that night over and over again yeah, I would and I, I, and I would right but you're not allowed to say that oh no That's but I, I think you should be able to say because that I, I, I would and also. I am glad that I felt it and I'm glad that I know that my body can go through that but I don't go around thinking that everyone else should do that too and I also recognize how much just complete luck and happenstance there is in this because one of the problems with this is the expectation and some births, and this is what people who are into what they call, and I know it's problematic language, natural birth movement, they go, your body's designed to do this. And that's where the failure part comes in, yes. right? Is that So if it doesn't happen, A according lot of to plan, bodies aren't designed exactly. to do it and babies will die in childbirth exactly. and they always have. And that's why that language is so bullshit and problematic because yeah. it's not. And so you do whatever needs to be done. But if you're like... If you do, if you're lucky enough to get the birth that you wanted, whatever that birth is, like whatever that drugs birth is. Drugs or no drugs. Yep, I don't mean lucky. You know, a scheduled Caesar can also, you can mm. go early. It can have like, if you're lucky enough to have the birth that you wanted, you also shouldn't have to walk around apologising. I agree. That. And I don't want to censor, and this is what the delivery room is about as well. Like I don't want to censor anyone's experience of childbirth and the, 
thing that can happen when women feel that they're not allowed to brag in a better commas is that we only hear the terrible ones Mm. and I think that that's not necessarily good for women to think that there is only one kind of birth story there are lots there are as many birth stories as there are women who have given birth and so I want all of them yeah I wouldn't want to censor what that woman said about her experience you know what all birth stories have in common for me is that when they get to the bit where the baby's born I always cry always I listened to your episode this morning did you cry driving in and it gets to the bit where Lee talks about Alexandra and she had a, oh. she had an emergency C-section and she talks about him being lifted up and I'm just crying in the car. See, like the minute someone's born, oh. I'm just in floods. See, this is, a, <laughs> as someone who's not a mother, I listen to that and I'm like, and then did you get stitched up? And they're like, they want to talk about the baby for a minute and I'm like, screw the baby. Did they stitch you? Mother Mia out loud. I feel like a woman. There's a cohort of workers who are being touted as the most desirable and flexible of all. According to a viral piece this week, the geriatric millennial is the sweet spot of age groups in a workforce. What's a geriatric millennial? Let me tell you. So according to a story, which is written by Erica Dewan, who's a US author and speaker who's written books about work culture and speaks a lot about this, geriatric millennials are a special micro-generation born in the early 1980s that are comfortable with both analogue and digital forms of communication. They were the first generation to grow up with technology like a PC in their homes. So she writes that if they were slightly older, they would have left college to work for a large corporate company, perhaps, and their career path would have been set in stone. But if they were born a couple of years later, the window to do that would have already passed them by. Some of the most successful CEOs in the world are geriatric millennials, Mark Zuckerberg, Canvas Melanie Perkins, Reddit's Alexis Ohanian, Rent the Runway's Jennifer Fleiss and Airbnb's Brian Chesky, all geriatric millennials. The point this article makes is that geriatric millennials are special because they can read body language and in real life cues that this piece argues younger Gen Ys and Gen Xs don't, Gen Zs don't because they are used to in-person communication but they can also decode a text message can also understand when it's better to send a so they bridge the analog digital divide what do we think about this i reckon i do that and i was born in 1990 so i recall being in primary school we didn't have it was pre-google you had to ask jeeves and we would ask jeeves and we'd have the paper clip and it would come up oh yeah and then i remember google coming out and it had you could google something and you could press i'm feeling lucky I don't know if you can still do that, but it had I'm feeling lucky. So you'd put in a thing and then it would take you to a random website. We were taught how to Google in those sort of early days once it eventually came out. Did you ever send a fax? Yes, I've sent a fax. I did that in my first job. Did you have that sound where the internet was connected? Yes, AOL, and it had the dial up and then mum would go, I'd yell, mum, get off the phone, and then she'd be like, get off the internet. We'd disconnect each other all night. That but was our relationship. do you know how to talk pe- to people in real life and read no. body language cues? I not don't, but that's nothing to do with my generation. It's to do with my own personal failings. Yeah. Like, Mia's not good at that. No, I'm not good at that. Oh, you're both no, actually good at that in real life. I don't, yeah, but it's funny because I think if you're – if you're the other side of that, if you're Gen X, you often have a barrier where it comes to technology. And it's funny, you call technology something that came into being after you were born, really, mm. because if you grew up with it, the television isn't technology for Gen Xs, but for our grandparents, the television that's, was very much technology. That's very true. 
I got a bit offended by this just like you did, Jesse, because I think if you don't fall into this category, you're like, excuse me, I think I'm the most excellent and flexible demographic in the workplace, thank you. Because I was like, surely anyone who was born before Google but still had to be in a workplace fits this to a point. Like, I get a bit ragey these days, which is possibly my age, about ageism in the workplace. And this assumption that people over 40 can't work technology is not true. They might use it differently, but does that make it wrong? You know, like, Mm. does it make it wrong that they want to have a mixture of IRL conversation and digital conversations? When When I'm thinking about how to communicate about a particular work issue, I have a range of choices available to me, right? Call an in-person meeting, close the door, sit down, send an instant message, send a detailed email, call, never, (laughs) text. Like you have a range and what you do is you decide which one is the most appropriate for the conversation you've got to have, right? Whereas I think that maybe if you're on the much younger, you you don't understand the nuance between those things. But you work in digital media and I think you Mm. are the exception that proves the rule because I think when I look at my peers, they don't necessarily have that nuance. And I know that when there's certain platforms that I'll go on to, like Snapchat, where I'm just like, this is not made for me. In fact, this is actively made to shut me out. Whereas I watch my kids and even Jesse use those platforms just without thinking. So it's not to say we can't learn them, but it's harder for us to to go fluidly between digital and analogue. Jesse, you've come back from a few days off and you are like dying to tell us all the things we should be reading, watching, listening to, all the things. We're only going to let you have one. Oh, one today, so one many. on Friday. I have a bank. Okay. But the one I'm going to recommend today has got to be Mare of Easttown. So, um, I didn't turn it on because I... Is that I, the Kate Winslet thing that I've been saying on the yes. sides of buses? And to be... To be transparent, it is taking a lot for me to get into a series because, as we all know, I have been invested in The Office, which is 59 seasons long and it's just taking over my whole life. But I heard a few things about Mayor of Easttown and I thought, all right, I'll give it a go. And it's sort of in the same vein as if you watched, I can't remember if it was Marcella or Marcella, Broadchurch. Mm. There are some sort of crime mystery shows that just get me. So it's not for me. It is. Probably is not. Does it- one of the best. It is Why? so, so good. Okay. Could I have a, what, a question? Does it start with a body? Yeah. yeah. Duh. Like everything good, it starts <laughs> with a body. Why should I watch it? Kate Winslet love is her. everything. Yes, love her. Kate Winslet's face. Kate Winslet's hair. Kate Winslet's body. To see someone of Kate Winslet's age looking like someone of Kate Winslet's age. Well, we can't watch a whole show just because we're grateful that there's a woman on the telly oh, who looks like us. No, I will. Yeah, I will. As an actress, <laughs> point she does an outstanding. Oh, I think she's a brilliant actress. But anyway, sorry. And of course, she's British and she is playing this detective in Philadelphia and her accent is incredible. It's about so much more, you know, and it's got all the complex levels. And I got about three episodes in and I thought I have never read or watched a show where I have been less sure. You know how you've got a hunch? Like he did it. She did it. He did it. It could be anyone. And I'm just on the edge of my seat and they're drip feeding them. So I think episode four or five just came out. Best episode yet. And there are seven. (gasps) And you can watch it on Binge, which has a free trial if you don't have Binge or Foxtel, one of the best crime shows I've watched in a very Ooh, long time. Oh, that's a Mare big recommendation from crime queen yes. Jessie Stevens. Yes. Thank you so much, Jessie. 
That is all we have time for on Mamma Mia Out Loud today. This episode was produced by Emma Gillespie. The executive producer is Eliza Ratliff. And on tomorrow's Daily Drop, oh, Mia, freaking out. Freaking out. Having a freak out. Uh, It is a really good episode where we try and unpack Mia's freak out about TikTok. And technology more broadly. No, no, no. It's very specific. I'm having a very specific freak out for a very specific reason. Yes, and it's it's quite the emotional conversation. So if you are an M Plus member, go listen to your daily drop. You can find out more always about M Plus at mamamia.com.au forward slash M Plus P-L-U-S. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures.